Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. In all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. Thank you for choosing to worship with us here this morning. It is good to be back with you, sort of. Um, Three weeks in Florida, and I'm not going to lie, when it's 10 degrees when you wake up and it's almost spring, it's, it's annoying. But I love Iowa and I love the people here. I just am irritated with winter towards the end of it every year. The older I get, the worse it gets. So there's no danger of me moving though. Both my kids have planted roots here and we have a grandchild on the way. So it doesn't matter. We're here until, until Jesus returns or the Lord calls us elsewhere. So, um, the Lord called Abraham elsewhere. He moved from his homeland and he moved to Canaan and he packed up his tribe and he went. And we've been following, we've been following through this series called Living Stones, God's working in very flawed human beings to, to build a household of God, a household of God. And so this week we are, we're taking a look at, at, uh, at, the, at the patriarch by the name of Jacob. So please turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 28. I want to open with a question. I want to open with a question. Why do we do things? Why do we do things we know to be wrong? So if you were here last week, you, you, you realize that essentially you're just reading a reality show in the middle of Genesis. I mean, this is a train wreck. The way that these people behave is, is, is shocking. They're, they're patriarchs, right? So, and and we're, we're shocked by their behavior. But truth be told, if you look at your individual life, you've made some pretty stupid decisions. Maybe even this week. Maybe last night. Maybe this morning. So the question is, when we do, when we do things we know to be wrong, why do we do them? Um, Josh pointed out last week in, in Genesis 25 through 27 that it was very clear, very clear that Rebecca, that Rebecca and Jacob knew they were lying. They knew they were deceiving Isaac and yet they pushed through anyway. Why? 
taking the spotlight off of, off of Jacob and off of Rebecca, when the last time you did something you knew you shouldn't, you knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway, what was the reason? What was the reason? You might say, well, it was ignorance. No, no, it's not ignorance. Now, I'm not saying that we don't, we don't, we do things sometimes out of ignorance. We didn't know any better. But the question implies you do know that it was wrong and you did it anyway. So it clearly can't be ignorance. Rebecca and Jacob knew what they were doing and they did it anyway. So in this case, it's certainly not ignorance. You, you could say, well, sin. Well, yeah. But that's way, way too vague. It's way too generic. It's like being at a funeral and saying, how did the person pass? And the person says, well, their heart stopped beating. Well, yeah, yeah, but what was the cause? That's, sin is too generic of an answer. It doesn't answer the question. It doesn't get at a heart level. It doesn't tell you the mechanics of what was going on in the head, what was going on in the heart. The right answer is misplaced worship. The right answer is misplaced worship. So we're going to take a look at three things this morning as we're looking at uh, mainly chapter 28 in Genesis. We're going to take a look what it is, what misplaced worship is, uh, what it leads to, the consequences and the fallout. And the third thing we're going to take a look at is how do you realign it? How do you realign it? How do you fix it? How, how, how do you get back? Or maybe not get back. Maybe you were never on track to begin with. How do you, how do you worship rightly and, and allow God to work in your heart and actually change your heart and tra- change and transform, transform you? So open your Bibles, Genesis chapter 28. Please pray for me and with me. Lord, we come to you in humility, recognizing that there have been so, so many times that we know what we ought to do, and yet we do the things we ought not to do. And we do them intentionally sometimes, and sometimes we don't do them on purpose, but nonetheless, we suffer the consequences. Broken relationships, shame, guilt, all those different things. Lord, would you show us the condition of our hearts, and would you show us the solution? Would you show us Christ? Would you show us the gospel? Would you show us your grace, your mercy, your love? your steadfast love. Father, would you use your word this morning to bring glory to yourself and draw us to you, that we might catch a vision of your greatness, your love, your character, and your person, and the person of Jesus. Lord, we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Okay, let's take a look. First of all, what is misplaced Worship. Let's start with the word worship. It's not in the text. It's not in the text, but there's a whole lot of worship going on. There's a whole lot of worship going on in Genesis 25 through 27. There's a whole lot of worship going on in this room. There's a whole lot of worship going on on the University of Iowa campus. There's a whole lot of worship going on wherever there are human beings who currently have beating hearts. Everyone is worshiping all the time. You can't help but worship. You see, worship, worship, it has nothing to do necessarily with a religious service coming to church. What worship is, is the act of ascribing ultimate worth to something. And everybody ascribes ultimate value or worth to something. See, that's what worship is. So everyone is worshiping all the time. 
Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not religious. It doesn't, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about the act of ascribing ultimate value to something. That does, that something doesn't have to be God. That something doesn't have to be God. See, worship, you can worship anything. You can worship God. You can worship Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can, you can worship uh, trees. You can worship carved images. You can worship uh, relationships. You can worship food. You can worship power. You can worship sex. You can worship comfort. You can worship, you can worship anything. You can worship anything. You can worship your children. You can worship your family. You can worship a whole bunch of things. You can ascribe ultimate value to those things. So that's what worship is. The only question is, what's the object of worship? What what holds the place of ultimate value for you? So think about that before we go to the next point. For you, what holds that value? What, 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 where do you ascribe ultimate worth? Where do you ascribe ultimate worth? Okay, so now let's look to another thing here. Blessing, you looked at this last week. What was Jacob trying to get? He was trying to get the blessing. The blessing of the firstborn. He's the secondborn. Now, remember, God had told told Rebekah that the children that were wrestling within her womb, that the, the, the younger, the younger would, would be the, the rights of the firstborn. It wouldn't be the firstborn, but the, the older would serve the younger. But then as Esau came, he was the firstborn, and dad was having no part of that. You remember last week, Isaac, who was his favorite? Esau was his favorite. Isaac wasn't going along with God's plan. He wasn't going along with God's plan. And so Jacob tries and succeeds in stealing the blessing. Now, a blessing, a blessing is any good thing, any good thing. It could be health. It could be wealth. It could be success. It could be relationships. It could be honor, good family, esteem, power, etc. In the context for Jacob, what he's looking for is the rights of the firstborn, the rights of the firstborn, the firstborn. As you remember last week, Josh covered this. The firstborn receives all of the inheritance. They don't divide it equally back in the day, back in Abraham's day. Uh, the firstborn gets the whole estate. And, and, and with that, with that, he's also spiritually looking for the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Isaac. So all of that comes as a package deal. And so that's a blessing. It's a good thing. And he should want that. God told his mother, Rebecca, that he would have it, but he, that's what he wants. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, misplaced worship, misplaced worship occurs when you value the blessing more than the blesser. When you value the blessing more than the blesser. Now, I want to modify this because after I, after I typed this out and I was looking at it, who's the blesser in, in Jacob's context? It's not a trick question. Well, that's the, the bless. Who gives all good gifts? God, right? So he's the one who told Isaac, your son, Jacob is going to receive the blessing. Although Isaac's not going along with it. He has, he's, he's tricked into doing it. But the blesser in this case is God. Now here's the, here's the thing though. Someone said, Isaac, why is that relevant? Because oftentimes we look to others as the blesser. The ultimate blesser is God. But sometimes you can substitute a blesser, which is not God. You can look to yourself to get your own blessings. You can look to any number of things. So I want to modify that. 
valuing the blessing more than the blesser or looking to another blesser who's not actually God. That's ultimately misplaced worship. Whenever you value something and that something, that ultimate something is not ultimate, that's misplaced worship. That's misplaced worship. Now let's jump into the text and and see what this leads to. What does it lead to? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel, you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. See, that's the consequences of misplaced worship. How many people have experienced relational conflict in the last year? All hands go up. Why do we have relational conflict in homes? Why is there marital strife? Why is there sibling rivalry? Why is there discord in the workplace? Why, why is there discord in the nation? Why is there discord among nations? Because of misplaced worship. That's, that's true, and it's been true for all time. Why did Cain kill his brother Abel? That, it begins right here. It's misplaced worship. It's misplaced worship. Now, the desires. What causes fights and quarrels among you is not this. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have. See, that's the blessing. What's the desire? What is it that you think is going to give your life ultimate value and meaning? That's what you're striving after. That's what you're longing for. That's where your heart is. And that's where worship is. Now, as we look back to last week, what was Isaac's chief desire? Isaac's chief desire was that his favorite son, Esau, received the blessing. He had a favorite son. Jacob was not the favorite. So Isaac is going along against God's will. You see, that's what it does. Misplaced worship always leads to devaluing God and going your own way. And so because of that, because of that, his wife, her favorite little boy, Jacob, who, by the way, God said would be the heir, would, be, would receive the, the promise, would receive the blessing. But instead of trusting God, she begins to manipulate she begins to lie, she begins to cheat, she begins to steal. And then her son, Jacob, he follows suit. Now, is it wrong for, for Isaac to love Esau? No. Is it wrong for Jacob to want what God promised him? No. Is it wrong for Rebekah? In other words, is it wrong to want these blessings? No. Whatever the blessing is that you want, it's probably somewhat at least connected to some legitimate desire that God placed in the hearts of human beings. But the problem is that these desires, they become over-desires, if you will. They become more powerful than they ought to be. They become controlling. They become controlling. Uh, we're not going to cover the text, but I want to jump ahead just a little bit into the next chapter. So you remember last week, Esau wants to kill him. Jacob steals the blessing, and, and now his life is in danger. Mom says, your brother's really ticked. You should probably leave town. And so he does, and he goes to the land of his, his, his father's homeland, and he goes to, to Rebekah's brother Laban. And this is where he meets uh, Leah, and, his, his, and he gets his two wives. And it, it's, a, 
it's the housewives of uh, Padam, Iran. It's, the, it's, another, it's another reality show. It is an absolute train wreck. Genesis chapter 29, Genesis chapter 30, Genesis chapter 31. We'll cover a little bit of that next week, but I just want to give you a couple things. You, you, you have Laban, who is, is Jacob's uncle, and he meets Laban, and Laban cheats him. The cheater is now cheated. So Laban's ultimate desire, his chief controlling desire is wealth and power. And so because wealth and power is what drives him, he cheats his future son-in-law. And then, then you have Leah, his, his daughter, who, who he wants to marry Rachel. And so work for me seven years and you can have my, my youngest daughter, Rachel, and she can be your wife. And Jacob's like, it will be just like a day working for you because I love her so much. And so the wedding night comes, he's worked seven years and he, he goes to bed whom he thinks with Rachel and he wakes up and it's like, there's what, what is this? This is not Rachel. What is going on here? And so then Laban says, well, work for me another seven years. You know, it's not customary for us to give our, our youngest. We give away the firstborn. So just another seven years and then you can have her too. And so he does. And in the meantime, there's all of this sibling rivalry going on. And, and Rachel's chief desire, or Rachel rather, uh, yeah, Rachel's chief desire, her chief desire is children, but she can't have children. So she says to her husband, Jacob, give me children or I will die. Now that's an indication that that's my chief desire. The number one priority in my life is I must have children, but I can't have children. And so what does she do? She pulls a Sarah and she says, so take my servant and sleep with her. So the desire to have a child overrides integrity, overrides everything. And then her sister Leah, her chief desire is the love of her husband who she doesn't have because her husband doesn't love her. She plays second fiddle. So there's sibling rider. And so she does everything to manipulate her husband to get his love. It's, it's, it's not flattering. It's not flattering. And I, that's what I love about the scriptures. It, they're so real. They don't sugarcoat this. You read Genesis and you're like, seriously, these people are not examples they're examples of misplaced worship. That's what we have here. That's what we have here. So we have all sorts of over-desires. Isaiah, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Laban, Leah, Rachel. Now, these characters' actions, they're opposed to God. They're liars. They're cheaters. They're manipulators. They steal. They're violent. It's a picture of humanity. So that's the consequences. That's the consequences. That's what misplaced worship leads to. Now, let's get to not, let's step out of thousands of years ago and, and, and come into our own day and age. All parties in Genesis chapter 29 through 31 and all parties involved in this room see the wrong done by others while remaining blind to their own sin. Can you agree with that statement? Do you, can you agree that you have a tendency to see with 2020 vision when other people do wrong? Yes? However, we're not, we don't see quite as clearly when we look in the mirror. We don't tend to identify our own issues, our own sin. Why is that? You see, we feel justified in our indignation and condemnation of other actions. You see it with Isaac. When Isaac was tricked, what did he do? He trembled 
violently. He was ticked. He was ticked. He wasn't trembling violently 10 years earlier when he favored Esau and had no intention of actually following through with God's plan. There was no trembling going on. He was just going about it. He didn't feel violated. Now, Rebecca and Jacob, they could see that he was opposed to God's will. They could see his fault. But then when they were stealing and manipulating and cheating, and they, they didn't tremble violently. You see how that works? We feel justified in our indignation and condemnation of others. When you are wronged or when you see wrong, when I see wrong in other people, I become typically indignant or at least judgmental. How could they? Right? But then when someone points out or expresses indignation and condemnation of our actions, we just feel so attacked. We see so persecuted, so misunderstood. Is this, not, is this not our universe? We see clearly the wrong that other people do and we condemn it. But when it's us, we want to be judged by our intentions. We feel misunderstood. Why? Because that's what misplaced worship does. It makes us blind. It makes us blind to the consequences. So how do you change? I I think everybody can uh, at least assent. Okay, yeah, that's pretty much true of me too. How do you change? How do you change? How does a person who who typically becomes, has a flashpoint of anger and, and their anger manifests itself in a certain way which is destructive and harmful to other people. How do they stop being that way? How does a person who has an addictive personality, who has a bent towards overconsumption, alcohol, food, sex, power, whatever, how do they, how do they stop? How do they stop? What do you do? Jacob has an issue. How does he change? Well, I'll tell you what God doesn't do with Jacob and what he doesn't do with us. God doesn't start with Jacob at a behavioral level. So we're in Genesis 28. I want you to turn here. Genesis 28. Jacob is heading out. He is going to his, uh, going to his uncles. He's traveling about 600, 700 miles. He's getting away from Esau. He leaves Beersheba and he went towards Haran and he came to a certain place. And so what does God do? How do you realign worship? Here's what God doesn't do. Jacob, you are such a liar. Jacob, you are such a deceiver. You need to change. Now, if God did that, would that be true? Yes, it would be true. It would be true, but it wouldn't change anything. I often meet with guys who struggle with, with pornography or, or with anger, things which I am familiar with. I've struggled with both in the past. Anger presently, pornography 20, 30 years ago. But how do you, how do you change? Telling someone to just stop or try harder not to be what you are 
it, it never helps. Just stop being deceitful, Jacob. Just stop being lustful. Just stop being filled with rage. Just be more gentle, Brooks. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not that it doesn't need to happen. And it's not, not tr- it, it, it is true that that would be a good thing for change to occur. But starting with the problem, the behavior being the problem is not the problem. You have to go to a worship. You have to go and you have to see a vision of God. It starts with God. What we do is a response to who or what we worship. And if our worship is misplaced, we must start with the right appropriate object of worship, which is God. And this is what God does. He meets Jacob right where he's at. He doesn't ask him to change yet. He doesn't even change him yet. But he reveals himself. He reveals himself. So let's take a look. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 15. It will not be on the PowerPoint. We just have the reference, but I want to read it. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there at night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said... By the way, just a quick textual reference. It, it assumes that it's the ladder, but translators, commentators are like, this could also be translated, the Lord stood above Jacob. The Lord stood above him and said... I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. Okay, so introduction. This is who I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of your father, Isaac. Your granddad, before your dad, and then your dad. That's who I am. I'm their God. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. He gives him the same promise he gave him, he gave his grandfather. Now, has Jacob done anything to deserve this to this point? No, no. God introduces himself, and then he starts making promise. Verse 15, behold. Behold is, look, listen. Listen. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That is the God whom Jacob needs to learn to worship. So far, he's been worshiping the blessing from the blesser, but he hasn't been worshiping the blesser because he doesn't know the blesser. Now he is introduced in in this vision, in this dream, he meets the blesser. He meets the blesser. And what do we learn about this blesser? First of all, we learn that this God is present. He is present. He says, I am with you right here, beside, above, beneath, 
in the near vicinity, all around you. You know, how many of you have heard this phrase? Oh, I just need to go to the man upstairs. Anybody ever heard that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Any of you ever said that? Stop. He's not the man upstairs. He is the omniscient, omnipresent God that is everywhere, all at once. The psalmist says this in Psalm chapter 30, 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of a morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. Jacob learned something. He learned a theological truth. It was true before the dream, and it was true after, but something happened in the midst of the dream. He realized that God is with him at all times, even if he can't sense it. He says, his his summary was, God was in this place, and I I didn't even know it. Do you realize that God is in this place? And no, not because wherever two or three are gathered, he is in their midst. Although that's true. When everyone leaves here, God will be in this place. When you drive home or you leave for lunch, God will be in your vehicle as you drive. When you go to work on Monday in your your workplace where, where maybe God is not honored, he will be in that place. If you should go to the very ends of the earth, if you should be persecuted for your faith, if you should go into a dungeon like we'll see, uh, like we'll see Jacob's son Joseph in a few weeks, wherever you go, he is with you presently in that moment at all times. When you are in pain, he is with you. When you are experiencing intense pleasure, he is with you. He is never not with you. When you are weeping bitter tears because you can't sense his presence, he is with you. You, like Jacob, may not know it, but he is with you always. Jacob didn't know that that theological truth until this moment. Secondly, God is active. He's not the God of the deist who winds up the universe with intelligent design and then steps back and watches everything happen. He's the God who has his fingers in the mix. He's the God who hears the cries of his children and responds to those cries. He is active. What what does he say? What's the text say? I will, I will, I will. I will, I will, I will. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This is a God who is not passively leaving things up to Jacob and his wisdom and his strength and his power. This is a God who is promising to be with him and promising to make everything that's necessary happen so that all the promises that he's been given will be fulfilled. 
God is with you and God is active. God is with you and God is active. I know there are times when neither seem true. There are times when this ever-present God does not feel present. There are times when this ever-active God seems to not be available to do anything. But he's always working. And he will not leave you and he will not leave Jacob until he is done everything that he said he was going to do. Everything. That's who he is. Now, how do you respond to this vision of this God? Let's take a look at how Jacob responds. Jacob makes a vow. This is the first vow in the Bible. This is the first time in recorded Hebrew history where someone says, because of who God is, I'm going to do this. He makes a vow. He makes a vow. Let's take a look at that. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and, I, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What do you make of that? There's a lot of ways to look at this. What do you make of this vow? Jacob, here's one option. He hasn't changed at all. This is a mercenary prayer. I mean, think about this. Okay. It's quid pro quo. If you do this, then I'll do that. It's an if-then faith. If you give me the blessing that you promised, I'll give you a tenth and you can be my God. If not, all bets are off. That's how the text reads. That's how it reads. That's not terribly flattering to Jacob. But why should we think he would be flattering? Has he given us any evidence in the previous chapters that he is a, char- as a man of character so far? No. So I'm inclined to think that's pretty close to the truth. However, I will say, I will say that as I'm doing my study and as I'm reading all these commentaries, I keep reading all these commentators that are saying, oh, no, 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 it's not a mercenary faith. This is a man of deep faith and he's changed. His vow is an expression of faith. And I'm like, and, and they say, and here's the reason, because that word if in the Greek, if, if you're looking Greek, I'm sorry, Hebrew, in verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house, then the Lord shall be my God. Some commentators are are saying this word, which is translated if in the Hebrew, it can also be translated since. So the correct reading of this should be, since you're going to do these things, I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust. So they're saying this vow is an expression of trust. Like, oh, okay. Well, one problem with that, I can't find an English translation 
NIV, King James, New Living, uh, New American Standard, ESV. I can't find an English translation that translated sense. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not an expression of deep, profound faith. But that's not the plain reading. So, is, so does it have to be one or the other? There's a third possibility. Jacob is changing. It's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. In other words, he believes, but his belief is, it's embryonic. It's immature. He does intend to trust. He does intend to trust. Think back to his granddaddy, Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. He takes him out and he says, take a look at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many your descendants are going to be. You remember that chapter? And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So did Abraham believe? Yes. Did he intend to trust? Yes. By Genesis chapter 16, he's bedding down his wife's servant. What? That's the way it works. That's the way it works. You get a vision for God. You hear that sermon. You're moved. You feel the Holy Spirit's presence. And you make these vows. I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be patient. I'm not going to be lustful anymore because I've gotten a vision of who God is. He's always with me. He always keeps his promise. And you mean what you say when you say it. And you intend to do nothing else but keep your vow until you intend not to. Until you walk away and you begin to play out the if-then faith. The if-then faith is absolutely poisonous. Here's how an if-then faith works. God, if you make my circumstances just so, I will love you. (sighs) Your circumstances are not going to be just so. You're going to leave here and you're going to get punched in the mouth You're going to get punched in the stomach. Some Jacob is going to steal your blessing. Some Esau is going to come after you. You're going to be persecuted. Not everything's going to go the way that you want it to go. And you're not everything is going to go the way that you think it should go. And you're going to call into question whether God is present and whether he's active. And you're going to look at that if-then faith and you're going to say, God, you're not here for me, so I'm out. And you'll be just like Jacob and Abraham. (laughs) You you won't be any different. That should give you hope. Because here's the thing. If you had to have your act together before God would come to you and work in your life, there'd be no hope for you as there'd be no hope for this guy. Are you serious you're going to make a bargain with God? It's a little bit of both. I do believe that he sincerely believes this and he's not being mercenary. And yet, he is mercenary. He's still selfish. That's just the way we are. So, what do we do with this? Some practical takeaways. We need a proper view of God. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, 
after Nathanael comes to Jesus and he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And he says, behold, you are the Christ of God. He says, you believe because I saw you under a fig tree? I tell you the truth, you'll see greater things than these. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus refers back to this very passage, this very vision. Essentially what he's saying to Nathan is, God is here right now. And it's not that the angels are descending, it's that I am the latter. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the presence of the Almighty God and I am with you. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And you will see God working in and through me, the Son of Man. You see, this, this, this revelation to Jacob is a precursor to, the, to, to Psalm 23. Familiar with Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies and feeds me. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil for you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you realize that, that what God told Jacob in this vision is the precursor to that? I am with you. I will never leave you. I will always feed you and I will protect you and I will make this happen. Jesus is your good shepherd. And he doesn't just walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. He enters into death so that you can go through that without fear. Jesus receives all of your pain. Jesus receives all of your sin, all of your conniving, all of your manipulation, all of your lust, all of your pride, all of your greed. He receives all of it. So you receive none of what you deserve. And understand what Jacob received was all of grace. What does Jacob deserve? Nothing. What does Jacob deserve proactively? Condemnation. What does he receive? Blessing. How? How could this lying, cheating, manipulating individual receive the blessing of God? Because the good shepherd received his condemnation. And the good shepherd received my condemnation. And the good shepherd received your condemnation. And the good shepherd imputes and gifts to each one of us his righteousness and his blessing. And he is always with you. He will never leave you. And he will carry you through till the end of days or the return of Christ, whichever comes first. It's all of grace. You need to understand that this is based on grace. You don't reform yourself before you receive what God has for you. Jacob is still Jacob when he has this vision. And then lastly, we need reminders because you, you, you hear a sermon like this and maybe you're moved and maybe you're like, oh, I just want to follow Jesus until Monday morning. Until what you have your heart focused on, the blessing becomes ultimate again. And then you're back to square one in the sense that you're acting like you were on Saturday night. 
We need reminders of his promises. We need reminders of his person. Those, those promises are, are dredged up and, and revisited when we're in the word, when we're in prayer, when we're in fellowship and all the other disciplines. Because we forget. Jacob intends to follow through on his vow right now. But that's because it's Sunday morning and he just heard a sermon through a vision. But Monday's coming. That's next week's sermon. So I'd encourage you to place your hope and your trust not in your ability to manufacture a blessing, but place your hope and your trust in Christ, who is the blesser. Who is the blesser. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for calling us by grace through faith. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Father, I pray if there's someone here who does not yet know you as Savior, that today would be the day that they trust you, who is always ever-present and who always fulfills and carries out your promises. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.